we begin this morning a, a new series on um, really my favorite Bible character, uh, other than the Lord Jesus Christ, of course, uh, a man by the name of Joseph. And I love uh, Joseph, and uh, I'm looking forward to studying his life together with you on Sunday mornings. Believe that this is where the Lord would have us to go and where he'd have us to be. And uh, during this season uh, for our church, you look around this church and you see so many different uh, people at different and various stages of life. What I love about Joseph is that Joseph, as we're given his story, the beginning of it here, the 37th chapter, he's, he's just 17 years old. And uh, he is sort of an example, I believe, in many respects for young people to look to. As we look across this room, there's older folks in this room and there's middle-aged folks in this room. As much as I hate to admit it, I think I'm maybe in that category nowadays. And then there's young people in this room. But really what we find in the life of Joseph is good, no matter what stage you may find yourself in. Genesis 37, look with me if you would, in verse number 1, where the Bible says, And Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Or in other words, he's saying this is the story of Jacob. This is the story of his children. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colors. And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. And Joseph dreamed a dream, and he told it his brethren, and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you the dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood round about and made obeisance, or bowed before my sheaf. His brethren said to him, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him. Yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And he dreamed yet another dream and told it his brethren and said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. He told it to his father and to his brethren. And his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that thou hast dreamed? Shall I and thy mother and thy brethren indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee to the earth? And his brethren envied him, but his father observed the saying. I suppose it's fitting that we study the life of Joseph as we've just recently concluded our study in the life of Abraham, Joseph's great-grandfather. Joseph was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac, who was the son of Abraham. John G. Butler is especially well known for his Bible biography series and his volume on Joseph. Now think about this. The whole book is entitled Joseph, the Patriarch of Character. Joseph was one of the few individuals in the Bible that we read about in which nothing negative is ever said or known about him. Throughout his life and every temptation and every circumstance that we are made aware of by the Holy Spirit of God, 
Nothing negative is ever said. Joseph seems to always do the right thing. Now, please don't misunderstand me. This is not to say that Joseph never sinned. We know the Bible is extremely clear that all men are sinners. And Joseph was a man just like the rest of us. It is to say, however, that Joseph was a man dedicated to character and integrity And for whatever reason, the Holy Spirit of God chose not to allow us to know any of his flaws, though they certainly existed, to be sure. I believe it's important to study the life of Joseph, not only because he was the great-grandson of Abraham, a man that we've just recently finished studying about, nor do I think it's only reasonable for us to study the life of Joseph because of his superior character that we've already described, and you'll certainly learn of as we read through his story and through his life. But I also believe it's important we study this life because he is a type of Christ in the Old Testament. We can compare the life of Joseph with the life of our dear Savior in several ways. By the way, this is not an exhaustive list, but I believe it's recorded there for for you in the notes. Number one, Joseph was rejected and hated by his own. We've read of that here in the beginning of Joseph's life story. At the age of 17, we discover a strong, uh, robust envying and hatred developing in the lives of his brethren uh, towards him. The Bible says about our Savior in John 1, 11, that he came unto his own and his own received him not. We also discover that Joseph is a type of Christ in that Joseph was sold for the price of a slave. The Bible will tell us a little bit later, even in this very chapter, that the hatred of his brothers was so strong that they initially wanted to kill him until one of the brothers stepped in and said, we can't do that. Uh, He's our father's son. But here's what we can do instead. Let's let's sell him into slavery. And so they did. They sold him into slavery. Some Midianite merchants were traveling through an area where they were. And the Bible says that they agreed on a price and that they sold their brother into slavery who was then taken down into Egypt. About our Savior, the Bible says that Judas Iscariot said unto them, What will ye give me? And I will deliver him unto you. And they covenanted with him for 30 pieces of of silver, just as our Savior was sold by one of his own. So Joseph was sold into slavery by his own brothers. But there's a third way in which Joseph is a picture, just a picture of the Old Testament, a Old Testament picture of Christ, in that he was falsely accused and punished. Of course, a little bit later in his story, in Genesis chapter number 39, we're going to discover that Joseph makes it into Egypt, and he's now a, a, a chief servant in the house of Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's guard. The Bible tells us that at a certain point, his master's wife began to lust after him and to begin to desire a physical relationship with him. And Joseph repeatedly uh, kept himself from uh, being spotted from uh, the world in that way. And he chose to maintain his dignity and his purity and his character. And yet we know the story that she made a story up about him, that he had actually done to her what she was trying to do to him. And And the Bible says that he was arrested and that he was punished and put in jail. The Bible says about Jesus in Matthew 26 and verse number 59. Now the chief priests and elders and all the council sought false witness against Jesus to put him to death. So just as Jesus was falsely accused and he was put to death. So Joseph was falsely accused and punished. 
But notice there's a fourth way in which Joseph is an Old Testament picture of the New Testament Savior, Jesus Christ, in that Joseph saved the world from death by physical famine. Joseph saved the world from death by physical famine. A great famine of seven years lasted during Joseph's life. A famine that was so severe, had it not been for Joseph and God putting him where he put him, no doubt many, many, perhaps millions of people would have died as a result of this famine. They would have died a physical death. But I remind you that Jesus Christ is not necessarily here to save us from death by physical famine. But Jesus Christ, he lives today to save us from death by spiritual famine. That without Jesus Christ, you and I would be lost in our sins. The Bible says in Luke 19 and verse number 10, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And then we've already touched on this just a moment ago. I think that Joseph is a picture of Christ in that Joseph did right in every season of his life. He did right in every season of his life. You'll find that there are Bible characters in which we can identify certain seasons of their life in which they got off track. I'm thinking of David. David, of course, is a young shepherd boy. He's someone that we can look to. He's someone that is inspiring. He's penning the Psalms. He's uh, standing up for his flock of sheep. Uh, He is uh, standing up for his God and his God's name. Uh, he is uh, he is now resisting the urges that must have been within him to remove the king who's making life so difficult on him. He's had several opportunities at this, and yet every step of the way, he's refusing to lift up his hand against God's anointed. And then he becomes king, and life seems to be going so well, but then we come to 2 Samuel chapter number 11. And we're greeted with a season of David's life that we'd rather not know about a season in which David steps out of the, uh, of the admirable man that we have, we have viewed and we have observed all this time. And, and David does some despicable things. His own son Solomon. We talked a little bit about him last week. And Solomon, of course, he grows up, son of the king. He's given the throne. God comes to him. God appears to him and says, what will I give thee? Solomon's laying in his bed that night. He's having this dream. God is speaking to him. And Solomon says, I I only want wisdom. I feel like I don't know how to go out and I don't know how to come in. I don't know how to judge, Lord, this thy people that are so great. And God looks at him and God says, because you have not asked for wealth, because you have not asked for fame and for possessions and for honor and for victory over your enemies. He says, because you've asked for wisdom, I'm going to grant that to you. And I'm going to give all of these other things to you as well. And we're thinking to ourselves, man, this is, this is the kind of guy that we want to be like. This is the kind of guy that we want our sons to be like. And yet, of course, we've looked last week and we've considered about the fact that Solomon gave his heart to pleasures and, to, and, and, and earthly experiences And he came to the end of it all and he said everything that he had tried was vanity, was empty, that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. And the Bible says that those wives, they turned his heart away from God. That's just one example of many. We can think of Moses smiting the rock instead of speaking to the rock. And we can think of Moses killing a man in his attempts to deliver the nation of Israel prematurely from slavery. And and, and again, we can think of Gideon and we can think of even Noah towards the end of his life doing some things that that were not pleasing in God's sight. And I'm just simply saying that Joseph, in every season of his life, 
seems to do the right thing. The Bible says about our Savior, in Hebrews 4 and verse number 15, For we have not an high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. What temptation did you face this last week? Isn't it comforting to know that our Savior faced the same temptation and that he succeeded over that temptation in victory? And that because he's our Savior, the same, listen, the same power that rested in him resides within us as well. That you and I, we can have victory over the issues that we're facing. And so Joseph is worth studying because of his family lineage and because of his superior character and because he's a type of Christ. But think about this. Joseph is also worth studying because a quarter of the book of Genesis is devoted to telling his story. While we get one chapter, think about this, one chapter on the creation of this universe, we get significantly more information on the life of this young man. You know what that tells me? It tells me this. It's so clear to me that the Bible is a book about and for people. In other words, God gave this book to us. It's for us. It's written with you in mind. It's written with me in mind. And God is much more interested and he's much more involved in the stories and lives of men than he's interested in what's happening around us as far as nature is concerned or maybe other things that, uh, that, that we might take interest in. God created, listen, God created all of these things for our enjoyment, but the work of God in this world is about people. And we're introduced to Joseph at the tender age of 17. Can you remember what you were like when you were 17 years old? Some of you have to go way, way back in your mind to remember life at 17. Uh, I, I remember life at 17 just vaguely. And I can remember some of the thoughts and some of the foolish things that I did. Maybe some of the good decisions that I made. Uh, at the age of 17, I was deciding where I was going to go to college. I was really setting my heart towards ministry life. And, and, uh, and, and God had, of course, done a work in my heart and in my life at that point in time. Uh, we discovered Joseph in his life at this age. And I have to tell you that what we find in him would be enough to make any parent beam with pride and joy if their child behaved similarly. A common attitude that exists among many in our world today is that youth, young people, are supposed to be immature and supposed to be lacking in character. In other words, it's not only that we tolerate that, but we almost expect that out of kids. We've almost come to the point where it's like we've set our children up for that. As if, like, I would not expect you to be any other way but to be foolish and to be silly and to be immature and to make really, really poor choices and really, really poor decisions. And I just have to tell you, this is not at all in line with Scripture. And it should not be the standard by which we, as God's people, raise our own children. The Bible says, as Paul is writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12, it says this, Let no man despise thy youth. Now, how many of you have seen an older person, maybe in a public place, watching teenagers do something silly, maybe do something immature. And you've watched an older person, sort of a get off my lawn type of a guy. You know, he's got his arm crossed and he's got this kind of gruff, nasty look on his face and he just couldn't, young people, 
teenagers. And maybe, maybe even some of you, you're, you're that guy. <laughs> you're that girl. Um, you're the one that sort of just doesn't have a whole lot of tolerance for, for young people. You know what Paul is writing here? He's saying, you know what he's saying? He's saying, he's not necessarily saying to the old guy, don't be like that. Even though I, I, think, I think old guys and old women and middle-aged guys like me don't be like that. Let's have some patience. But you know what he's saying to the young people? He's saying, don't give the old guy, don't give the get-off-my-lawn guy an opportunity to respond to you in that way. Live your life in such a way that no one can despise you because of your youth. Now look what the rest of the verse says. But be thou an example of the believers. Did you know that if you're a young person in this room this morning, I, I, I don't know where, what age you might be, but let's just consider that you're sitting here and you're saying, I consider myself a young person. You know what God expects out of you? God expects out of you that you be an example of the believers. That you be someone who conducts yourself in word, in conversation or lifestyle, in charity and love, in spirit, in faith, and in purity, that you conduct yourself as an example in all of those areas. Listen, it's time for us to raise the standard of living among God's people, even among God's young people. That you can do this, that you ought to do this, that there is a scriptural command, there is a scriptural precedent or imperative that you do this. Now, Joseph's example of godliness is on full display in this introductory chapter. He will live, and I have to tell you, I've read the whole story, I've read all the way to Genesis 50, and you will discover that Joseph will live with this same character and integrity all of his life. Therefore, listen, he is a worthy example for us to follow, and he is also a worthy character for us to study. I want to jump into the outline if we can, and let me just say, number one, that as we come to the life of Joseph, we discover, first of all, the maturity of Joseph in his youth. The maturity of Joseph in his youth. Look in verse number two. The Bible says, these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brethren. Skip down to the end of the verse. And Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. I remember reading a book when I was a youth pastor a number of years ago. And the book made an incredible statement. It said this, it said this. It said, maturity is not an age. Maturity is the acceptance of responsibility. You you know, here's here's where we are as, as Americans. We believe that maturity is an age. So for instance, those of you that have just recently turned 18, we look at that as sort of being a monumental age. We might even back it up a couple of years. Let's say those of you that just turned 16, you have arrived at an age in which we think, as a society, we think you're capable of driving a car. Now, who made that determination? I have no idea. Somebody did. I sort of questioned their judgment a little bit. But I was glad that they made that determination when I turned 16. I couldn't wait to get behind the wheel of a car. I grew up in a preacher's home. The first place I went with my own driver's license all by myself was at the library. Now, how pathetic is that? But I was just trying to get out of the house. I go anywhere. I'll go to the library, you know. But, but we, we, would, we would look at somebody, a 16, that's, that's significant. You should, be, you should be mature enough for us to give you keys to a car and for you to be able to drive that car responsibly and safely. 18, what, what do we allow young people to do at 18? We allow them to vote. We allow them to join the military. 
And many of them, of course, go off to college and, and maybe even begin, in some respects, a life sort of on their own. And so there's an, there's an expectation that at 18, there is some level of maturity. At 21, there's some other things that are afforded to them in our society. Certainly not necessarily good things, but there are things that we say, okay, now you're able to do this. Now you're allowed to participate in this. And I just have to tell you that age is, age is not, maturity is not about an age. One doesn't just automatically become mature simply because they have a birthday. No, maturity is the acceptance of responsibility. You and I both know people that are far younger than 16, 12, 13, 14 that conduct themselves with more maturity than some of the folks maybe that you work with. Some of the people that live on your street who are married and who have families of their own and who have their own lives and, and, and their own bank accounts. You and I understand, listen, that maturity is not an age, not in any way, shape, or, uh, or form. I've seen young people who are very mature, while I've seen older people who are very immature. Notice a couple of things about jo- Joseph that indicate an element of maturity. Number one, he was a diligent worker. He was a diligent worker. The Bible says in verse number two that Joseph was 17 years old. He was feeding the flock. I heard about an old farmer, and he observed this. He said, the hardest thing about milking cows is that they never stay milked. you got to keep doing it day after day, week after week, month after month. Same thing was true with this flock that Joseph was responsible for feeding. It was his job to make sure that they had adequate grass to graze on, that they had adequate fresh water from which uh, to drink from. Uh, his story begins, the very first thing that we know about him, other than the fact that of his age, is we find him feeding his father's flock. And I have to think to myself, as with so many other great men in the Bible, Joseph begins his life as a shepherd. Did you know that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were all shepherds? Moses was a shepherd. David was a shepherd. And of course, we know that Jesus was a spiritual shepherd. He calls himself in John 10, the good shepherd who gives his life for his sheep. The good shepherd who knows his sheep and who calls them by name and they hear his voice and they know him and they follow him and he gives unto them eternal life. The work of a shepherd was usually reserved For the least, as David, the youngest of Jesse's eight sons, could attest, uh, it it meant time away. Shepherding meant time away from home, uh, time away from the house and the family. It meant being lonely. It meant facing the heat of the Middle Eastern sun. It meant exposure to danger in order to care for the flock. And I just have to remind you that life is work. It's hard work if one intends to be successful. Joseph here exhibits an eagerness uh, to embrace hard work from, from the very moment that we're introduced to him. And he carries it throughout to the end of his story. At 17, Joseph is caring for a flock of sheep. At the age of 35, 40, and into his 50s and 60s, and age, aged, as an aged man, Joseph is caring for a whole nation of people. And in some respects, he's looking after the whole world and making sure that there's food to provide for him, them in the midst of this famine. I think about this. Joseph worked hard, and we see him in his life. He worked hard in his father's house. He worked hard at Potiphar's house. He works hard in the prison house when he ends up there being falsely accused. And then he works hard in Pharaoh's house. 
Joseph was a diligent worker. But notice, secondly, we discover his maturity and not only in the way that he worked throughout his life, but we discover his maturity and that he was morally upright. I read of two theological students who were walking along a street in the Whitechapel district of London many, many years ago. There was a section of London where old and used clothing was sold. As they were walking, one of the students spoke up and he said, what a fitting illustration all this makes. As he points to a suit of clothes that's hanging on a rack by a window there in that district of London. On that suit of clothes read this sign, slightly soiled, greatly reduced in price. He went on to say, that's it exactly. We get soiled by gazing at a vulgar picture or reading a coarse book or allowing ourselves a little indulgence in dishonest or lustful thoughts. And so, when the time comes for our character to be appraised, we are greatly reduced in value. Our purity, our strength is gone. We are just part and parcel of the general shop-worn stock of the world. While feeding his father's flock, Joseph was confronted with certain pressures and certain temptations, no doubt, to do wrong. The Bible reveals that his older brothers, Jacob's other sons, that they were involved in wickedness and evil in their lives. And we discover that Joseph refused to be involved in what his brothers were carrying on with. Not only did he refuse involvement in what they were doing, but the Bible says that he brought what he had seen to the attention of his father. I know some might read that and say, well, was Joseph a snitch? Was Joseph a tattletale? Sometimes words that we might use. But I want you to stop for just a moment. I want you to think about some of the things that his brothers were involved in. And if you knew someone involved in some of these things, you would be just as much in the wrong by keeping it to yourself as, if, as, if, as Joseph would have been in the wrong by keeping it to himself. Say, what are some of the things that Joseph's brothers were involved in? As we read the Bible, we discover that they, his brothers murdered, now listen, they murdered all of the males, all of the men in a certain community at a certain point in time. There's a long story that goes into this. We won't have time to get into it. But if you were to read from Genesis 34, you would read of this evil and wicked deed that was committed by his brothers. His father, when he learned of it, he called them together and he said, you, you have called me, you you have caused me, I should say, to be abhorred in the sight of those that I live around. I mean, so great was their wickedness and their evil that his father literally thought, I'm going to have to leave this place. I'm going to have to run for my life, except for the fact that God put a hedge of protection around Jacob. His brother, Reuben, the oldest of Jacob's sons, the Bible tells us that he had an immoral relationship with his father's wife. We read of that in Genesis chapter 35 in verse number 22. We'll later learn in this chapter that his brothers sold him into slavery and then they lied about it, causing their father to believe that his son was dead for many years. I'm just simply saying, listen, if you've got some guys like that that would be willing to do that, imagine what else they'd be willing to do. Imagine what other evil deeds that they'd be willing to do. By the way, when people tell you who they are, believe them. When someone reveals themselves to you in a certain way, just understand that's who, that's who they are. I mean, if there's a clear pattern of wickedness and evil, there ought to be some discernment among God's people to say, you know, listen, I don't have to be rude to that person. I don't have to be unkind to that person. But that's not somebody that I want to spend a lot of time with. Here's why. Because nearness is likeness. And because evil communications corrupt good manners. And because a companion of fools shall be destroyed. 
And so Joseph is looking at his brothers, and, and they line up in every one of those areas. I mean, they're a companion of fools. They're, evil. They're, they're men full of evil communications. And so Joseph stands out considerably among the wicked and evil deeds of his brethren. Though Joseph dwelt among those practicing evil and practicing wickedness, listen, he did not allow it to affect his behavior. Now, there must be a lesson in that for us. Sometimes we're quick when we find some inconsistencies in our lives. We're quick to use excuses like, well, I just can't help myself. It's just the world that I live in. Maybe, maybe a, a word rolls off of your tongue that maybe is not a word that a Christian ought to be saying. And when you're called into question about it, well, I'm, you know, what do you want me to do? I mean, I, I work here and all of my coworkers use that kind of language and just kind of slipped. Perhaps maybe involvement in some other activity that really is just not what a Christian ought to be involved in. And we like to use the excuses. We like to justify or rationalize our behavior. But where are the young men? Where are the young men who are like Joseph? Say, listen, I don't care what my brothers are doing. I'm going to do right. I don't care what my coworkers are doing. I'm going to do the right thing. I don't care what my master's wife is trying to cause me to be involved in. I'm going to serve God and I'm going to maintain my purity and my integrity and my character. Isn't that what God calls us to do? The Bible says in Philippians 2 and verse number 15, that ye, speaking of the church at Philippi, believers, that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke, notice, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. You know what God's saying? God is saying, listen, no, no, let's raise the standard here. There's no reason. There's no reason for God's people Even though you live in the midst, in fact, I've designed the Christian life to be able to be lived in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. I've designed it that you might shine as bright lights in the midst of this wicked and dark world that we're living in. And so we see the maturity of a youthful or teenage Joseph. But notice, secondly, as we continue reading through Genesis 37, we're introduced to something that I find so fascinating. And that is, number two, the generational sins of Joseph's family. The generational sins of Joseph's family. The Bible says in verse number three, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children. Though Joseph was born into a patriarchal Old Testament family, we discover that like with any family, this one had its issues and its problems. Now I find here in this very first phrase of verse number three, I find, number one, a clear pattern. A clear pattern. Here we find Jacob repeating the sins of his mother and his father as well as the sins of his grandfather. Hold your place in Genesis 37. I'd like for you to go with me just back a few chapters. Go to Genesis 25, would you? Genesis chapter number 25. And I want you to notice with me verse number 28. Genesis 25 and verse number 28. He said, now, why would, now where would jo- Jacob get the idea to love one child more than another? Who would, who would do such a thing? How would, you even, how would you even come to that type of conclusion or that realization? Would you look in Genesis 25, in verse number 28? Notice, and Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison. Now, is, if that's not the, the manliest thing I've ever read in my life, why did Isaac love Esau? Because Esau provided him with meat. Now, that, that's it. Guys, we're so simple, aren't we? <laughs> I mean, we are so simple. Feed me and I will love you for the rest of my days. I mean, that's what he's saying. Isaac loved Esau because of his venison. Notice verse 28. Bible says, 
But Rebekah loved Jacob. The Bible tells us that Isaac and Rebekah had two children, two boys. They were twins, born at the same time. Their names were Isaac and, and Jake, or Esau and Jacob. And the Bible says that throughout their lives, one of them had a particularly close relationship with one parent, while the other had a particularly close relationship with the other parent. And this became a real problem. Because in Genesis 27, Rebekah helped Jacob, her favorite child, to steal the blessing from his brother Esau, who happened to be Isaac's favorite child. Again, you can read all about that in Genesis 27. While Jacob was successful in stealing the blessing, listen, it eventually led to him having to leave his home, to flee his home in fear of his life. Ask the question, where did, where did Isaac learn this kind of behavior, to prefer one son over another? Well, Isaac grew up in the home of Abraham. Abraham was a godly man, certainly a man of great faith, but we discover that because of some choices and decisions he made, that he caused his home to be somewhat dysfunctional as well. The Bible tells us that he, upon the suggestion of his own wife, Sarah, that he married her handmaid, a woman by the name of Hagar, and he had a child with her. That child's name was Ishmael. Eventually, Isaac was born. He was the son of the promise, but God made him wait 25 years between when the promise was made and when the promise would be fulfilled. God is not opposed to causing his people sometimes to wait for some things. Waiting builds patience and can perhaps build other things in our life. The Bible tells us that when Isaac was eventually born, of course, as the long-awaited-for promised son between Abraham and Sarah, the beloved wife of Abraham, that he received preferential treatment till the point that it was no longer possible for Hagar and Ishmael to remain in the home. And so this is what Isaac had seen growing up. So it was very natural for him when his boys were born to sort of pick out a preferred child. And and, and because, because Jacob grew up in that type of home being preferred by his mother while his brother was preferred by his father, he thought it not that big of a deal to prefer one son, one son or one child over the others. Now it is important to note, it is important to note that in Two of these three cases, we're talking about the same family, some generational repeated patterns. It's important to note that Abraham and Jacob, in both cases, multiple wives were present leading two preferred children. Abraham loved Sarah more than Hagar. And Jacob loved Rachel more than he loved Leah and Bilhah and Zilpah. And so the children born to these beloved wives was preferred above the others. The text also tells us that Jacob loved Joseph more because he was born to him when he was an old man. Most believe that Jacob was probably in the neighborhood of 90 or 91 years old when Joseph was born. Jacob's preferring Joseph led him to present to presenting him with a coat of many colors. Bible scholars reveal that his coat, this coat was much more than just an item of clothing for him to wear. It was much more than him just having some nice jacket to wear when maybe the evenings were cool or the mornings were cool. No, there was much more at stake with his jacket. This was not the coat of a common laborer or a common worker, but rather this was the coat that would be given to overseers and to rulers. Jacob was unashamedly telling everyone that Joseph was to have a position ahead of his brothers, though they were much older than he was. This was a coat reserved for the firstborn of the family, but with multiple lives, which firstborn are we talking about? You see how complicated life gets when we do things outside of God's pattern and outside of God's plan? See, God, God designed, God designed for, for a man, one man to marry one woman, and for the two of them to stay married for life. 
Now, that's God's plan. And in a perfect world, that's how every marriage would be. But you and I both know that the world is far from perfect. People make really poor choices and really poor decisions. And when they do, life begins to unravel. And life begins to come apart. And when it does, oh, there are some great, great challenges for, from, from which we have to deal with. We see clearly how sin mightily corrupts and how it complicates things. And so we see a clear pattern here of a generational sin. But notice, secondly, a bitter taste. Would you look in verse 4? And when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all his brethren, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him. Just as Ishmael resented Isaac, and Jacob and Esau resented one another, so Joseph's brothers grew to resent and hate him for the privileged position that he held. They saw their father's unashamed feelings for Joseph. They observed the coat that he presented him, and they developed feelings of hatred and bitterness that would follow this, listen, would follow them and haunt them for many, many years. The Bible says, now think about this, the Bible says that they could not speak peaceably unto him. I want to just pause here for a moment. I want to say be very careful. Be careful about allowing hatred and bitterness to go so unchecked in your life. One of the ways, one of the ways that we can determine that we've got bitterness in our heart towards an individual or that we have reached a very, very dangerous point is when we cannot speak to or cannot speak about an individual peaceably. In other words, every time that name comes up, I'm saying nothing but negative, nasty type things about that person or to that person. That's one of the ways we know that Joseph's brothers hated him. They, couldn't, they could not even look at him and greet him. Hello. There are times in which uh, folks will come to me and say, you know, uh, brother so-and-so used to be so kind and used to be so friendly, but now, man, he, he barely, he'll barely even look at me when I'm coming down the hallway. I don't know what to say about that, to be very frank, other than just to say, well, we need to pray for that individual because that could, potentially could be a sure sign that there's been some level of hatred or bitterness has grown up in that individual Joseph's brothers would have been wise to take a moment, to take just a moment to consider why Joseph was preferred above them. We've talked about some of the evil and wicked deeds that they had done. The Bible never says that Joseph participated in those things. It might have allowed them to see some of their wicked patterns and behaviors and maybe compare that with Joseph's innocence and righteousness and maybe to implement some of those things. That, well, if we want dad to love us, maybe we ought to clean up our act just a little bit. Maybe if we want dad to love us, we ought to start doing the right thing. Though what Jacob did was unwise, who can blame him in some respects for taking such pride in the young man that Joseph was, while at the same time looking at the brothers that were the other brothers that were part of the family and seeing their evil deeds? It was obvious that God's hand was on Joseph, whereas Jacob's other sons were caught up in all sorts of wicked and unruly behavior. Now, listen, some of you, some of you in this room this morning are fighting. You're fighting demons and battles that have long been present in your family, heritage, and culture. And these are things that you're wrestling with. The question is this, why should you continue this fight? I mean, don't we all just come to a point where it's like, you know, what am I going to do? I'm a Folger. And Folgers are known for certain things. One of the things that Folgers have been known for over the years is we, we're not always the most patient people in the world. Sometimes I'm tempted to say, well, I'm a Folger. What are you going to do? Like, 
Sorry, dad, but my dad was this way. <laughs> grandpa, I'm sorry. My grandpa was this way. It's just, it's just the way it is. I mean, sometimes that's sort of our attitude and our spirit, isn't it? But hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Why should I continue that fight? Why should I, why should I wrestle with that? Because there's a little boy sitting in that car who's watching daddy. And if he watches daddy enough and he sees daddy say enough times, well, I'm a Folger. What are you going to do? You know what he's going to pick up? He's going to pick up on that behavior. And he's going to begin to say, I'm a Folger. What are you going to do? It's just the way it is. Why should we continue the fight? Because there is a generation coming behind us that needs to know that the fight is worth it, that we can do better. I think to myself that there were no doubt that some, some people read the scriptures as God's people and they justified plural marriages simply by claiming, well, Abraham and Jacob did it. If it was okay for them. And, and they would have read over all, they, they would have completely skipped over all the negative and they would have just read the fact that Abraham had more than one wife and so did Jacob. So therefore I should be able to do it too. Don't you understand that that's where, that's where humanity resides? They're looking for the lowest common denominator. We, we miss all of the negatives. We miss all of the sorry, pathetic things that come about as a result. And we justify behavior and activity by simply claiming, well, that if they did it, then I should be able to do it as well. Can I say that one of the hardest things you'll ever have to do is learn, is learn how to let go of some things. We're talking, about, we're talking about bitterness in the lives of his brothers. And the Bible says that they could not speak peaceably to him. They hated him. One of the hardest things that you and I have to do is learn how to let go of hurts and offenses that have fallen in our lives. I have to tell you, you're going to have to give up some things. You're going to have to lay some of those things aside in order to live a life that is blessed and is at peace. I read this week of a day in which two monks were walking through the countryside many, many years ago. They were on their way to another village to help bring in the crops. It was harvest time. And as they walked, they, they spied an old woman sitting at the edge of a river. And she was upset. Because there was no bridge. And she could not cross that river on her own. And she needed to get across that river to get to where she wanted to go. The first monk kindly offered. He said, we'll carry you across if you'd like. To the great delight of this woman who replied, thank, thank you gratefully accepting their help. So the two men joined hands and they lifted her between them. And they gently carried her across the river. When they got to the other side, they set her down. And she went on her way, as did they. After they had walked another mile or so, the second monk, he began to complain. Look at my clothes. They're filthy from carrying that woman across the river. And now my back hurts from lifting her. I can feel it getting stiff. The first monk just remained quiet. He smiled and he nodded his head. A few more miles up the road, the second monk griped again. My back, it's hurting me so badly. And it's all because we had to carry that silly woman across the river. I cannot go any farther because of the pain. The first monk looked down at his partner, now lying on the ground moaning. Have you wondered, dear friend, why I'm not complaining? The first monk asked. He said, your back hurts because you are still carrying that woman. But I set her down about five miles ago. You know, there's many people living life that way. I mean, they're still in the throes of, of, of carrying some of those old burdens, and it's weighing them down. I'm just here to tell you this morning, some of you, some of, some of us, some of us perhaps, we need to let some things go. 
Let's set some things down. We need to just give those things to the Lord. Say, God, I can't change it. I don't know why you have allowed this, or I don't know why I am where I am right now, but this is where you have me. And with God's help, I'm going to be as happy as I can in this season of life. The Bible talks about a root of bitterness springing up and says it troubles you, the person who has it. But then it doesn't stop there. It says, where, it says by it, many are defined. Those who have a root of bitterness that has sprung up in them, they're not just hurting themselves, they're hurting many, many people around them. I want you to notice finally as we conclude this morning, let's consider the dreams of Joseph's youth. The dreams of Joseph's youth. The Bible says in verses 5 to 11, that despite all of the turmoil surrounding his family and his life, despite the hatred of his brothers toward him, Joseph had a dream in his heart and in his life. The Bible reveals that he dreamt of a bright future. Verses 5 to 9, he tells us of two specific dreams. I sometimes think that maybe Joseph lacked a bit of discretion here by telling his family what he had dreamed. (laughs) I, uh, I think to myself, Joseph, now hold on a minute. These guys already hate you, and it's obvious. They cannot speak. They cannot even say a peaceable word to you. And now you're going to tell them how one day, one day you had a dream and everybody's bowing down to you? I'm just not exactly sure. And, 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 and again, maybe we could just, maybe we'd just say that God was still developing Joseph in this area. The Bible doesn't say anything negative about the fact that he's telling these dreams. And I have to think that in some respects, had he not told these dreams, uh, you know, that, that, that maybe this would be a missing part of his story. But we discover that he's dreaming of a bright future I think to myself that though he was just a 17-year-old boy, he dreamt of a day when he was a leader with great responsibility. I have to tell you that we're living in a day when so many people in our world have little to no dreams about their future. In other words, they're they're just trying to get by day by day. They're not thinking of a better day. They're not thinking of a brighter day. And, and maybe even some in this room, you've, you've, you've long given up any dreams about a bright future. You're just trying to survive. You're just trying to stay alive. You're just trying to make it from day to day. I just have to tell you that that's no way to live. That's no way to live. That there is always a, a, a climbing that is to be done in life. There is always progression that is to be happening in life. Many have settled into just getting through each day. Can I encourage you this morning to dream just a little bit? Can I encourage you to, uh, to ask, to really more importantly, can I encourage you to ask God to fill your heart with a dream. God, give me something that I can do. Give me some way that I can grow. Give me some, some opportunity for me to serve you in a greater way. Dear God, would you fill my heart, not with my dreams for what I want, but would you fill my heart with your dreams of what you have for my life? He dreamt of a bright future. I have to tell you that Joseph could endure some of these challenges the challenge of his present, the challenge of his brothers hating him, the challenge of them selling him into slavery, the challenge of being lied about, the challenge of being in prison. Why? Because he had a dream in his heart, a dream that he wouldn't let go of. Notice, we see not only that he dreamed of a bright future, but we notice, secondly, that his dreams were belittled and were mocked. As he revealed what he was dreaming about, he was mocked and his dreams were belittled. You know why, you know why so few of us are, are wanting to share what God has put on our hearts with others? is because of this response. Some of you are sitting here saying, I believe, I believe God has this for my life. I believe God has this for my family, but I dare not tell anybody about it. Why? Well, because of what the response would be. You? You could never. That would be impossible. I know you. You're a... 
whatever your last name is, you'll never get there. I know, I knew your daddy and I knew your granddaddy and I knew your great granddaddy. Uh, They all struggled. You're going to struggle too. And one of the reasons why we keep our dreams to ourselves is for this very reason, because they will be mocked and they'll be belittled. Just mark it down. Listen, you mark it down. God has put a dream in your heart of something great to do. And you just, you just understand right now, understand right now that there will be some, there will be some who mock and belittle that dream. Some of you, you come from a long line of divorce. And in your heart and your life, you're saying, but I still believe that marriage is for life and I believe that God's going to give me someone that I can be married to for the rest of my life. Amen. You know what you need to do? Speak up and tell people that dream. Let them know that this is the dream that God has put in my heart. But understand this, prepare for it to be mocked and belittled. Prepare for that. Understand that that's the way that human beings often do. And can I say that don't allow those who are not excited about their future to throw water on what you believe God is leading or calling you to do with yours. So often... So often we allow the naysayers, we allow the folks who just want to put out our fire to do so without any resistance whatsoever. Now listen, if God has put something in your heart, God has given you a dream, boy, you go forward with that dream. Notice we see thirdly that his dreams were God-given. They were God-given. His, his father, lastly, in verse number 10, he says, what is this dream? You really think that, that I'm going to bow before you and that you're... Mother's going to bow before you and that your brother's going to bow before you. But it doesn't stop there. That was, that was the word that he gave him. But notice verse 11. His brother envied him, but his father observed the same. Jacob's initial response was to join him with the naysayers, but we find him doing something interesting in verse 11. The Bible says that his father observed the same. In other words, Jacob was spiritually discerning enough to begin to perceive that something other than just a random dream was taking place here. Jacob was beginning to understand, hold on a minute, these dreams, I believe, are from God. In these days, these were days in which God often, often would speak to people through dreams and visions. Today, of course, we understand God speaks primarily through his word, but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that God can't or that he won't put something into a man's heart for him to accomplish for the glory of God. What has God put in your heart to do? Are you doing it? Are you trying to get there? If you're not doing it, are you preparing your life to be in a position to do it someday? Joseph felt like God had designed him for some position of leadership and influence And here's what he did all throughout his life. He was careful to protect himself so that someday he could be in a position to do what God created him to do. I believe the following words can summarize the life of Joseph. Though there were many bitter and difficult moments, Joseph kept dreaming, kept praying, kept trusting, sowing, and living. Poem writer wrote these words, I've dreamed many dreams that never came true. I've seen them vanish at dawn. But I've realized enough of my dreams, thank God, to make me want to dream on. I've prayed many prayers when no answers came, though I waited patient and long. But answers have come to enough of my prayers to make me keep praying on. I've trusted many a friend that failed and left me to weep alone. But I've found enough of my friends to be true to make me keep trusting on. I've sown many seed that fell by the way for the birds to feed upon. But thank God I've held enough golden sheaves in my hand to make me keep sowing on. 
I've drained the cup of disappointment and pain and gone many days without song, but I've sipped enough nectar from the roses of life to make me want to live on.